You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please open to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. We come this evening to verse 29, Matthew chapter 24. Read verses 29 through 31. Matthew 24, beginning with verse 29. Our Lord said, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together His elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Let's ask our God's blessing on His Word tonight. Father in heaven, thank You for the privilege that is mine this evening to declare the glories of my Savior, of our Lord, our Shepherd, our King, Your Son. And we ask, Lord, for Your gracious assistance as we do this. Lord, would You be at work in me and through me, and may You be at work in our hearts as we listen and receive Your Word. As always, Lord, we're mindful there are people who need your Son, perhaps some sitting in this room, and we ask you to save. But we, your sheep, need the food that our shepherd supplies, and that food is your Word. And so we ask you to feed us, to build us up in the faith that you've granted us, to strengthen us to live lives that glorify you in our generation at this time, and to strengthen our desire, our zeal, our resolve to stay awake and to keep watchful when it comes to the return of Jesus. And we ask you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The verses that I have the privilege to declare tonight should have our full attention. And they should have our full attention, really, in the final analysis for one reason. Not because you've never heard these things before. I'm quite certain that you've heard these things many times. Not because this section that we're studying answers curiosities that you might have or that they might supply some sort of intellectual stimulation. The reason why these verses should always have our full attention is because they are true. They're telling us about an event that we would not know about if God had not revealed it. They tell us about something that we embrace by faith. We can only imagine it because we've never seen anything like it. They speak of what is the believer's blessed hope, the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ from heaven to earth. These events... Not only is it true to say that they're true, we should be living with hearts full of expectation because they are certainly true. Just as sure as we were when we got up this morning, the sun was in the sky. 
so we can go to bed tonight certain that the day will come when what our Lord describes here will take place. These things are certainly true because they came from the mouth of Jesus, because they are the words of God. In fact, it is true to say that this entire prophetic section testifies to the true nature and person of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. If he says things are going to take place and they don't, then he was a fraud and he was no fraud. And so what he says here, you can live every day expecting. These things are not hard to understand, but they are things that men and women struggle to keep before their mind's eye. As I said, we've heard these things many times, but if we'll be honest with ourselves, are we living each day with these things at the forefront of our thinking? These are things that the natural man, the unregenerate person, wants to deny, will deny, or ignore. Perhaps you'll find a lost man or woman who will say, yes, I believe what the Bible says about the return of Jesus, but then they will certainly live as though it's not going to happen. These are things that a lukewarm church, a sleepy church, ignores, turns, turns a deaf ear to. These are things that even those of us who are striving to stay fervent in our love for the Lord, these are things we can become numb to if we're not careful. Because if we really believe these things are true, then we have to ask, how then should we be living? How should we be living? I'm convinced if we really believe these verses, our lives cannot remain the same. They will be changed. These Truths require a change in the way that we live. We'll see that tonight before we're done. We've already seen that what Jesus teaches in Matthew 24 and 25 comes in response to questions that His disciples asked Him. Their questions reflect their kingdom expectations. They ask in a way that desires to know something about the timing of His coming and something about the recognition of it. When will these things take place? What will be the sign of your coming? And when they're talking about His coming, they're talking about the end of the end. The end of the age. The ushering in of His kingdom. Jesus answers their questions. He actually lays out a timeline of events that will take place from the time of Him speaking to them on this earth to the time when He returns to the earth again. Verses 4-14 through 14, speak of the time leading up to the Great Tribulation, the midpoint of the Tribulation period. Verse 15, down to verse 28, speaks of that last three and a half years of the Tribulation period, the Great Tribulation. And now, in our verses tonight, Jesus talks about what will follow the abomination of desolation, what will follow that last three and a half years of Tribulation. When He says in verse 29, but immediately after the Tribulation of those days, and he begins to describe events that will happen at the end of that period of time. And so tonight what we're going to do is take note of the glorious second coming of Christ. As I said, our blessed hope, what we ought to be living our lives looking forward to every day, what we are exhorted to stay awake about, to live our lives vigilant in the light of, when Christ returns in glory, even as we've sung about tonight. 
And so this evening from verses 29 through 31, I want to point out four things that Jesus reveals about His second coming. Four things that Jesus revealed about His second coming. First of all, He identifies the timing of it. And by that I just mean He identifies a sequence of events. When He says in verse 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days. What tribulation is He talking about? Well, the tribulation He had just described in the previous verses. Verse 21, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And He says it is in those days immediately after the tribulation of those days that what He describes in these verses will take place. So seven years of tribulation. At the midpoint, verse 15, the abomination of desolation. Three and a half years later, the end will arrive because the events that Jesus describes here take place immediately after that time of tribulation. So there's a sequence that Jesus is setting forth. The time is identified. Second, take note that cosmic terrors are identified. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The last three and a half years of the tribulation period will be horrific. We covered some of that this morning. It is a time of the unleashing of the worst experience of the wrath of God the world has ever known. It represents a time of the worst experience of the wrath of Satan that the earth has ever known. And Jesus says immediately after that, it will be like the universe is being ripped apart. The universe will begin to fail. Matthew makes clear there will be no time gap. Eutheos is the word translated immediately. It means at once, directly. At once, you could say, after the tribulation of those days. Directly after the tribulation of those days. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. And there will be things happening with the heavenly bodies that will terrorize the world's population. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. Great darkness cast upon this planet. It's like God will turn the lights off. Stars falling from heaven. The powers in the heavens, Jesus says, will be shaken. Now there are people who will spiritualize all of these statements and say that Jesus is not describing something that will literally take place. I'm always baffled by this for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think about the first coming of our Lord. And I ask you just to reflect upon all of the Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in His first coming and how those prophecies were fulfilled in very literal ways. Second, I think about the fact that there is no indication in the language of Jesus that He is speaking in some sort of allegorical fashion. His description is straightforward. It just speaks as if it is literal, because it is literal. But another reason why I find it baffling that people struggle to believe that this is going to happen literally 
is because the Bible is full of amazing things that have already happened in the past at the command of God that people would have thought impossible. So I would frame it up this way. Why does this seem fanciful to you if you believe in a worldwide flood? Why does this seem fanciful to you if you believe the Bible's account of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? Why would this seem fanciful to you if you believe that an axe head floated? If you believe that Jesus walked on water? If you believe that God parted the Red Sea? Why is this the insult to human intelligence? <laughs> when you have all those things in the Old Testament that we know, if we believe the Bible, we know took place. Is this any more hard to believe than that? And even if you were to say, well, Jesus is using something of a poetic sort of description, it would still speak of literal realities. Maybe he's speaking in some sort of general way to describe what's going to happen, but it still speaks of cosmic terrors as far as human beings would see it. God turning the light off on the planet. David McKenna commented, the sign will be an unnatural disaster. Not earthquakes and famine, but eclipses of sun and moon, falling of stars and shaking of the heavens that defy human prediction or explanation. Astrologers and watchers of UFOs try to make a science of changes and disturbances in the heavens, but their efforts do not touch the prophecy of Jesus. When the sign of His coming is given, it will defy scientists and pseudoscientists, astronomers and astrologers, but there will be no way to misread its purpose. Even unbelievers will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter describes it this way, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So Jesus not only speaks of the timing of His second coming, immediately following the tribulation of those days, but He also speaks of cosmic terrors that will take place even as He is making His way to the earth. Which leads to the third thing I want you to see He identified the great event itself is identified in verse 30. The second coming then is identified in verse 30. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Even as it seems the universe is pulling apart Christ will be coming from the heavens. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Joe read it earlier from Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him, and to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
ushering in of the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, which will then, at the end of that, move into an eternal kingdom. Later on, not long after this discussion with His disciples, Jesus, as you know, is on trial before the Jewish council, and He speaks of this again. Listen to Mark's account of this, Mark 14, verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. What is Jesus describing both to His disciples and to the Jewish council? He's describing a literal, visible return from heaven, which is exactly what the angel of God said that this world can expect. Book of Acts chapter 1, verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Listen, this is after His resurrection. This is after 40 days on and off that He has spent with these disciples. They've been talking about the things related to His kingdom. And they are still expecting a literal earthly kingdom. That is a powerful evidence regarding a premillennial view of all of these last days events. They have not lost that expectation. And not once does He correct them and say, oh no, you've got this wrong. It's going to be a spiritual kingdom. Is this going to be the time when you restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons. The Father is fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when He had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up and a cloud took Him out of their sight. So they see a bodily ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ into the clouds. And while they were gazing into heaven as He went, Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. He will come again in the same way that you saw Him leave. Descending from the heavens, riding on the clouds, as it were, as He makes His way back to earth. And this is associated not just by the question of His disciples, but by the explanation of Jesus with the timing of His kingdom. Who will see Him when He does this? The whole world will see Him. Revelation 1 verse 7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen. A global knowledge of and recognition of the second coming of Jesus. His first coming was in humility and weakness. His second coming will be in glory and power. Jesus is coming again. He will set His feet down on this planet just like He left it. So He talks about the timing of this event and the terrors of this event. And he talks about the great event itself as he returns from heaven to earth. But then in verse 31, he mentions a fourth thing. 
And that is a great gathering is identified. A great gathering is identified. And He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together His elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. We've already talked about the fact that when Jesus comes again, He will come both for judgment and for salvation. For His people, it will be a great time of salvation. For the lost, it will be a great time of judgment. Well, in verse 31, it is salvation that He is emphasizing. As His elect are gathered together from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other, the angels sent forth to gather His people together as He returns from heaven to earth. But we need to ask, why will there be this gathering? Why will there be this separation, right? His elect gathered out from all humanity, His elect gathered together. Why is there this separating of His elect from the rest of humanity when Jesus returns from heaven to earth? The answer is judgment. Salvation for His people, but judgment for the lost. Those who are lost and alive when Jesus returns will be judged. Those who are saved and alive when Jesus returns will be gathered by the angels to Him. Look at chapter 25. We'll eventually cover this verse by verse, but I just want us to read it tonight. Matthew 25, look at verse 32. We'll read down to verse 46. Matthew 25, verse 32. Or verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. These are the elect of God. And the evidence there, genuine salvation, the fact they truly will be the elect of God, they evidence this by the way they had lived. Verse 35, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So identified with his people that our treatment of His people is our treatment of Him. Then He will say to those on His left, Depart from Me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you gave Me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave Me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite Me in. Naked and you did not clothe Me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit Me. During a time of great trouble, these people had no regard for those who had placed their faith in Jesus. Then they themselves also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? 
Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The elect of God living in the most unique moment in the history of the world will be preserved by the appearing of Christ. Remember he said, if those days had not been shortened, but for the sake of the elect, they were shortened. Christ returns and rescues His people. They're gathered by holy angels, ushered into the kingdom of Christ. All unbelievers are destroyed. You can read about this in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. But here's where I want to finish tonight. We think about the sequence of events as Jesus laid them out. And we think about the terrors in the skies as Jesus describes the cosmic changes that will occur just prior to His leaving heaven and coming to earth. And we think about the event itself, and then we think about this great gathering of the elect of God and the salvation of God's people and the judgment of the lost. And I ask this question then, do we believe this? Do we truly believe this? Because if we truly believe this, what difference will it make? What will it change now in the people of God? What will it change now in your life and my life? And I want you to see this with your own eyes. So, so turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 and listen to what will change. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 10 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Verse 11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? I mean, Peter's writing to believers in his day. I mean, right now. If all these things are true that we read about concerning the end of the age and the day of the Lord, if all these things are true, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? A new creation is coming new heavens and a new earth, Jesus is coming. So what kind of people should we be? Notice what Peter says should be different about us. First of all, we stop treating what is temporal like it's eternal. You notice he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, they're not going to last forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the words of God will not pass away. These things that belong to the present age are not for forever. The question is, are we living like they're not for forever? Do we live our lives as though what we have right now will never end? Are we sort of numb to the difference between this time and the eternity in front of us? sort of allowing ourselves to be lulled into a sleep that denies 
the reality of the terminal nature of the things we experience right now? Are you treating temporal things like they're going to be there for forever? And treating eternal things like they never truly will arrive. I mean, they're encouraging. They sort of lift your spirits to think about them for a moment. But then we leave a place like this tonight and we go right back to our way of living, which acts as if, behaves as if, temporal things are eternal and eternal things will never show up. Peter says, stop treating what's temporal like it's eternal. And he says, if we do that, we'll live a life that accords with our profession of faith. This is the second thing that will change. We will take seriously our calling. God called you, dear one, out of the domain of darkness, into the kingdom of His dear Son, made you a child of God, has now invested your life with true meaning and purpose. Are you living a life that reflects that? Are you living a life that looks like a believer? A life that says, I'm a Christian. Peter says, what sort of people ought you to be? What kind of a person should you be? What kind of people should we be? Seeing that all these things are to be dissolved. What sort of people should we be? Walk in a manner worthy of your calling, the New Testament says. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Let your steps reflect where you're headed. Let your lifestyle reveal where you're headed. Always be ready to give a reason for your hope. That is your sure expectation regarding things that are forever Live a life that says, I believe in the forever that God has revealed. If you examine your life honestly, if those who love you were to examine your life honestly, would they say, you know what? He or she lives a life that says they're not earthbound, they're heavenbound. The third thing that Peter says will change. It's wrapped up in the second thing, really, but he specifies something that belongs to such a life. So you're, you're walking, you're, you're living a life that is set on eternity. Well, what, what then shows up in such a life? Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? In lives of holiness and godliness. Your life should be able to be described in the sense of being set apart. Set apart from this world. Set apart from the lives that worldlings lead. Set apart from who you used to be. And not just set apart from the ways that we all lived in the lusts of our flesh and the desires of the mind, walking according to the course of this world. I'm thinking now about Ephesians 2. Not only set apart from that old life, but set apart unto God. That's holiness. Devoted to the Lord. My life exists for Christ. For to me to live is Christ. That's the sort of people we should be. Living lives of holiness, which will then mean taking on the character of our God Himself. Allowing, walking in such a way that, that His own character, the fruit of the Spirit, is being produced in our lives. Godliness, Christ-likeness. Is that happening? 
I mean, do you believe this? You see, this is what we're really asking. Do we believe what Jesus says about His own second coming? Because if you believe these things, then what sort of people will you be? And Peter says we will be people characterized by holiness and godliness. I can say it to you this way. When you find yourself in that spiritual place of spiritual laziness, and your life is taking on the character that it once knew when you were devoted to sin, when your life is, as Peter describes it, is being lived in such a way that you're spiritually nearsighted, the things that are temporal seem real to you, the things that are eternal are so distant, you have forgotten that you were cleansed from your former sins. That is, you're living as though the Lord never saved you, practically speaking. When you begin to imbibe the world's attitudes and the world's thinking and the world's motivations and ambitions and goals, when you find yourself immersed in this life as though it's forever, your real problem is a faith problem. It's that you don't really believe that all these things are going to be dissolved and Jesus is going to appear. Because if we believe this, we're watchful, we're awake, we're alert. Notice what Peter says. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Then he says in verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. We're waiting for it, but it's more than even just waiting for it. There's a hastening he mentions. What does that mean? Eagerly desiring something that will happen. Sort of an attitude that says, I can't wait. Looking forward to this. Eagerly desiring what I'm waiting for. You long for the day when all things will be made new. We sing about it this morning. But we sing it, we say it, it comes out of our mouths. But are we living lives that testify to the fact we really do mean it? O oh Lord Jesus, come swiftly. Come soon. Deliver Your people from this world of sin. Deliver Your people from our own world of sin. From the sin that's as near to us as our own selves. For we long for the day in which the world will be a world full of righteousness. Where we'll have a new body that matches the new us. Where our struggle with sin will be finished when everything you've already won for us will be ours in our experience, when faith will become sight. Oh, Jesus, usher in that day. Usher in that day. May the Lord help us to examine ourselves in light of these promises. And may the Lord strengthen us to long for what will be our future, to be weaned off of a desire centered on things that will be dissolved and replace it with a desire centered on Him who will be our reward for forever. And people of God would say, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You for these words of our Savior that set forth our future with clarity. Strengthen us, Lord, to 
wait for and eagerly desire the things that have been promised. Jesus Himself is our great reward. Jesus Himself is our blessed hope. So Lord, strengthen us to live looking to the skies, as it were, waiting for the return of Jesus for us, Your people. Save us, Lord, from our sinfulness in the present age. Lord, You've saved us by forgiving us of all of our sins, and yet we are all aware of the struggles that we know in the realm of our unredeemed humanness. Oh, Lord, help us to put those things away, to ask each day what sort of people ought we to be in all holiness and godliness. Lord, produce that in us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.